Well, good morning. Well, if you would, open your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to start in verse 28. And we'll see how far we get, uh, because what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to take two sermons and put those into one. Uh, and the reason for that is because if you were here last week, uh, you know that Michael Loudermilk decided to do his own thing. Um, and so he got us all away from our series. And so now we're all off track. And, uh, and I'm going to do the best I can to try to clean up his mess. And so, yeah, yeah, come on, yeah. Yeah, this, this house is going to go down today. Um, and if it, doesn't, if it doesn't go well, it's Mike's fault, you know. It's not mine. Uh, so my hands are clean. I'm just, I got nothing to lose. Uh, <laughs> but joking aside, uh, if you were here last week, uh, you know that, that Mike informed our church uh, that he has taken a senior pastor position in Arkansas. And I can get up here and I can, I can joke about Michael and I can tease Michael uh, because at the end of the day, I love Michael. I love Michael, uh, just like you do. And it's, it's hard to envision um, a future here at Wayside without the Loudermilks because they've been instrumental here. Um, this is difficult for our church. Uh, this is difficult for me personally. Uh, I'm not just losing a coworker. Uh, I'm losing one of my closest friends. Uh, I grew up in a, in a family of six. I was the oldest of four siblings. And so I never got to experience what an, what an older brother was until I met Michael. And Michael's been that for me. He's, uh, he's teased me. Uh, he's challenged me. And he's encouraged me as an older brother should. Um, so he's been that figure for me. This guy's a mentor. Um, he's a brother. And he's a dear, dear friend. Uh, I'd lay my life down for Michael. And so this is hard. Uh, but at the same time, like you, I'm also really excited for him uh, because there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Michael and his family are doing exactly what God has called them to do. And he's going and he's being faithful and I'm proud of him. Uh, but I've been praying because I realize, I don't know if they've thought about this, I realize I don't think they have tacos in Arkansas. You know? <laughs> like if they do have tacos, they're not real tacos, Okay. <laughs> So they're, it's going to be a culture shock for them. So we need to be praying for the louder milks. Um, but in all seriousness, um, I think all of us would agree that, that Mike is going to do great things for the kingdom. He's going to be a tremendous pastor. Um, God has blessed him with an amazing wife in Tori, who I know is going to continue to be that rock for him as they journey into this new season together. Um, but as he said last week, he's family. He always will be. Um, and so we wish him well. We're praying for him. And as a church, uh, we're going to wipe our face, and we are going to do what we have always done here at Wayside. Uh, we're going to open this book, and we're going to preach this word as we trust our God and we walk in faith. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would make yourself known this morning, that you would rend the heavens and you would come down. Equip your saints, teach your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke 19, verse 28, it says this. After Jesus had said these things, 
he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on top of it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But then some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground along with your children. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And then in my version, it says this, that Jesus declared with a loud voice, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Judgment is coming. (laughs) Um, This isn't your your typical uh, Christmas message. Uh, But it's a message uh, that we all need to hear. Uh, If you've been following with us in our series, uh, we're now entering the final section of the Gospel of Luke. And if you're looking at a timeline of Jesus' life, we are now entering the last days of his earthly ministry. And so the triumphal entry of Jesus starts what is known as Passion Week meaning this is the final week of Jesus' life. He's headed straight for the cross, and on Friday, he's going to die. That's where we're at. Uh, well, I grew up in the, uh, the video game era, um, so video games were, were definitely a part of my childhood. Um, I didn't grow up plenty. I didn't play any of this Fortnite stuff, okay, you young people. Um, I, I played like the classics, okay, like Mario Kart, okay, yeah, Donkey Kong, GoldenEye, NFL blitz, okay, the good stuff, okay, the good stuff, um, and some of you are like nodding, you're like, yeah, yeah, preach it, uh, and then others of you are clueless, you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is, which is probably a good thing, uh, but anyways, one thing you could do with these video games, with some of them, is you could put in a cheat code, okay, yeah, you could put in a cheat code, and what this cheat code would allow you to do is it would allow you to bypass certain challenges in obstacles so that you could just get to the fun stuff, just get to the end of the game. You could skip all the levels. You could skip all the challenges. You could skip all the time and endurance needed and just fast forward to the good stuff. I tell you that because one 
aspect of Jesus' life that I find absolutely incredible is that while Jesus had the ability to put in a cheat code, he could bypass all of the hardships, he could bypass the rejection, he could bypass the suffering, the death, just put the crown on my head, call me king, let's get to the good stuff. And what's astonishing is Jesus says, no, that's not the Father's plan. I didn't come to initially reign. I came to die for sinners. That's why the Father sent me. The zeal Jesus had for this design plan of suffering is nothing short of remarkable. Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He is going to die. But what Jesus shows in this passage is that he is absolutely in control of it all. None of this is random. None of this is beyond his control. Jesus knows the cross is coming and he's ready. He says, bring it on. This is methodical. This is sovereign God doing what sovereign God does. He knows precisely where this leads. And he's orchestrating the whole thing because it's all his plan. And he tells his disciples, he gathers them, he says, hey, this is how this is going to go down. You're going to go into this village, in this village that you've never been to, and you're going to see a cult, untie it. Naturally, the owners are going to come up to you and they're going to say, what are you doing? That's my cult. And all you're going to say is, the Lord has need of it. And they're going to be like, cool. And then you're going to take the cult and bring it to me. And what happens? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. Why? Because Christ is in complete control. He's running the show. He's moving the chess pieces and determining precisely what happens. Until now, up until now, Jesus did not want this to happen. But now he does. Now is the time. This was the city. This was the week. In fact, Friday would be the day. So Jesus gets on a colt that has never been ridden, which, just side note, one of my favorite miracles in the Bible is right here. Um, listen, I, don't, I didn't grow up on a ranch. Um, I've got some family members that did. One thing I know you don't do, you don't just jump onto donkeys or colts that have never been ridden, okay? That, unless you're going to the rodeo, all right? You don't do that. Uh, so Jesus, he's just showing off here, okay? Uh, he just hops on this thing and rides it through a crowd like it's no problem, okay? Why? Because he is the creator of all. He's showing off here. And so Jesus jumps onto this colt like it's no big deal, and he rides into the city. And when Jesus enters the city, he's entering at a very peculiar time, because at this very moment, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have gathered in Jerusalem, who have traveled from all over, because this was the time of the year where they would come together and celebrate what is known as Passover week. And during Passover, God's people would feast and they would sacrifice in order to remind them of how God had been faithful in the past, how God had saved them from the hands of Egypt through his servant Moses. He had led them to the promised land where they got to start a new life. And so the Passover was supposed to be a time of remembrance as they reflected on God's faithfulness. But the Passover was also a time of great anticipation as they would anticipate a day where God would once again raise up a leader, a Messiah, 
who would be chosen in order to lead God's people out of captivity, where they would once again be given a renewed life and a renewed identity, but under the Messiah's reign, it would last for all eternity. And so they waited with anticipation by reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past because that gave them hope that God would indeed be faithful in the future. Um, I I don't know about you, I I can be... um, an extremely forgetful person at times. Um, and I, I really think God made me that way to sanctify my wife, okay? Um, but I, uh, I have a tendency to lose things, um, especially my car keys, okay? Like even right now, I don't know where they are. Um, but I, I have a tendency to lose those things. And so uh, my wife tries to help me. She's like, hey, I'm gonna make this, like, here's a hook, I bought it for you. And I'm just gonna put it next to the door, Okay. All you have to do, Jace, just come home, open the door, put the keys on the, on the hook. <laughs> um, and I do that sometimes. Um, but I, other times, I, just, I put it other places, like the couch or, you know, on top of the dresser drawers or next to the TV. And then I, life happens, and I just forget. I forget where they are. And so we're never on time to anything. <laughs> okay. um, but just to be honest with you, it's, it's not just with my keys. It's, uh, it's deeper than that. There are times that even as a pastor, I will forget how much my God loves me. There are times where I will forget that God has created me with a purpose. And he's given me certain gifts that he wants to use for his kingdom. There are times when I will forget that God has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west. There are times that I will forget the promises that God will complete the work that he started in me. I'll forget all of the many blessings that God has given me and I will at times focus in on that one thing that I don't have and it'll steal my joy. I don't think I'm the only one who struggles with that in this room. That's one of the plagues of humanity. We are a forgetful people. And I share all that with you right now because what the Israelites are supposed to be doing in this passage is what Christians all over the world are supposed to be doing right now, especially during Christmas. God has granted us this time in order to advent, in order to remember his birth, to remember his sacrifice, to remember his resurrection. And as we remember these things, it should cause us to rejoice because that means our suffering and our waiting and our faith is not in vain because God has been faithful in the past. So we wait with anticipation because we know that God will once again be faithful in the future. That's Christmas. Joyfully remembering his appearing and joyfully anticipating his coming. And that's what this season is all about. And that's what the people in this passage are supposed to be doing as Jesus comes riding into town. And we read that as Jesus enters the city, that people put their coats on the ground in order to pay homage to a king. And they start chanting with a loud voice, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a major moment 
in Jesus' ministry. The disciples are probably pretty geeked up right now. Uh, Jesus, it looks like he is about to be made king. This is a powerful display of authority because don't miss this. People are worshiping. People are worshiping Jesus. They're praising him as God's anointed one. And Jesus is not rebuking them. He's accepting their praise. Uh, This is a big deal. The Pharisees understand what's going on here. Uh, They realize the weight of all of this. And they show up and they tell Jesus, cut it out. (laughs) Rebuke your disciples. Because you are not God. But your disciples are worshiping you as if you are. And Jesus responds emphatically. If they become silent, the rocks will cry out. Jesus is equating himself to God. This is a powerful display of his deity, and it's a display that is ultimately going to get him killed. That's why you and I, we can never believe the lie, which I'm sure you've heard it, that Jesus was just some good moral teacher. Jesus was just some good and moral teacher. Listen, good teachers don't receive worship. Good teachers don't act like they're God's anointed when they know they are not. Good teachers don't willingly die for something that they know is a lie. Crazy teachers do. Nutcases do. But not good teachers. So all of us were presented with two options. Either Jesus was absolutely crazy. He was a nutcase. Or he was who he says he was, the son of God. But then we get to verse 41, and the scene scene changes a little bit. I mean, we go from this praising, there's worship, but then after all this takes place, it says that Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. The Greek language here is very strong. Jesus is sobbing. He is absolutely overcome with agony. And so the natural question is like, what just happened? I thought things were going well. There's praising. Now there's sobbing. What's going on? And I'll tell you what's going on. Jesus realizes that many of the same people who were just praising him would days later be screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus knows that the majority of these people are not following him because he's the son of God. They're following him because he's a miracle worker. He does good things. And so they're wondering if we keep following him, maybe he'll turn water into wine again. Maybe he'll grant us more bread. Or maybe even better yet, he'll topple the Roman government and we won't have to pay taxes anymore. You see, the problem is these people had their own vision of what they wanted the Messiah King to look like. They had their own idea of what they wanted Jesus to be. And this idea was, he's going to get me what I want. He's going to make me happy. He's going to make things easier for me. And they weren't all that interested in repenting of their sins or walking in a manner that pleases God or submitting first and foremost to what God's word says. Their thinking was, can I get good things from Jesus without sacrificing much? Many of us do the same thing. We like Jesus, 
as long as we don't have to deal with our sins. We like Jesus as long as he allows us to do whatever it is that makes us happy, even if those things are contrary to what God's word says. But when it comes to sacrificing things in order to look more like him, when it comes to confessing our sin, when it comes to walking in obedience in ways that at times makes us feel uncomfortable, uh, we don't like thinking about that type of Jesus. We like to box Jesus into who we want him to be, not who he actually is. Uh, But here's the deal. And God has had to show me this time and time again. God is way more concerned in growing our faith than he is in just giving us a really comfortable life. He's way more concerned in growing our faith than just giving you everything that you want. And a lot of us, and I've seen this in my own generation, I've seen this with my friends, I've seen this in my own life, and it's this thinking, God just wants me to be happy. Like he would never have me do something that's against my desires. And so we don't take his word seriously. We go to church, we may go to ABF, we may go to life group, but the reality is we're just checking boxes. There's no genuine repentance in our life. There's no real desire to follow Jesus. We're just going through the motions and we're following him as long as he makes us happy. Uh, But here's the deal. We can't play games with Jesus Christ. We can't fool him. We can't pretend like we want to follow him, but deep down our hearts are far from him. Jesus didn't die on the cross or raise from the dead so that you can do whatever makes you feel happy. No, Jesus did all of that to show you that he is God. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord of all. There's only one way to live, and it's through him. There's only one way to eternal life. It's through him. There's only one way to true joy, and it's through him. And if you'll trust him, the beautiful thing is that God will grant you new life. He'll grant you forgiveness. He'll grant you what you don't deserve, fellowship with God. But that doesn't come as a result of just going through the motions. It comes through faith. It comes through a genuine relationship with God. Why? Because God wants your heart. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to mold me. He didn't die for the fake you. He didn't die for the fake me. He died for the real you, the broken you, the messed up you. And he wants that you to come to him in faith. But in this passage, Jesus knows that these people lift up their hands and they call him king, but their hearts are far from him. And so he weeps as he sees the judgment that is coming because of their refusal to turn to him as the true Messiah. Their rejection of him as the true Messiah was catastrophic. Judgment was coming and many would die in their sins because of their refusal to embrace him for who he was. They had missed their window of opportunity to receive him as Lord. This is a heartbreaking, gut-wrenching moment for Jesus because Jesus loved these people. He loved them. But faith always involves a choice. 
And these people were choosing not to believe, so judgment was coming. And the mood shifts in verse 45. As Jesus now enters the temple with judgment on his mind, and you can probably imagine the emotional and spiritual state that Jesus was in as he enters. And it says in verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Well, what's going on here? Well, there's a lot we could talk about. This is a whole nother sermon, okay? Uh, But in a nutshell, what's happening here is people are using the temple in a way that is dishonoring to God. The temple was built in order to direct people's hearts towards God. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship and prayer, a place where the scriptures were taught, a place where people could confess their sins, a place where people could find atonement. But instead, people were conducting themselves in a way that disregarded the reverence, the reverence of worship that the temple was originally meant to display. So what does Jesus do? (laughs) Well, He wrecks shop, okay? Um, I think this is where the term comes from because he literally goes in and he wrecks their shops. Uh, If you read this same story in the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus literally goes in and he starts flipping tables, okay? Uh, This is not meek and gentle Jesus. This is Jesus with his hair on fire, okay? Um, I don't know about you. There's obviously there's a bunch of things I want to do in heaven. Uh, One of them, is I know he's got a bunch of recordings of his miracles and stuff. And so I want to be like, Yo, like Jesus, please show me a recording of you going into the temple, okay? Because um, like, there are hundreds of people in the temple. And you're telling me they just lined up. Like he said, get out. And they're like, okay, sure. Are you kidding me? No, like th- this was a confrontation, okay? Uh, this was probably terrifying for a lot of people in the temple. And this is a powerful act of God. Make no mistake about it. And let me just say this, there are times when it is appropriate and godly to be angry. I'm going to say it one more time. It is appropriate at times, very appropriate and godly to be angry. Now, let me clarify, because I know there's a lot of people, you're smiling, I'm godly, I'm angry all the time. Okay, uh, <laughs> let, me, let me clarify. Um, A lot of us here struggle with anger, (laughs) but it's usually anger that's rooted in selfish pride rather than the glory of God. We go to Starbucks, we order a grande coffee with cream and two Splendas. We get it, they forgot the Splendas. (laughs) We mad, (laughs) we're mad. We go to Las Palapas, I want a bean and cheese taco. You get the bag, it's a chorizo and egg, okay? It's frustrating. We get on the highway. We get cut off. So we wave, okay? (laughs) We don't get the promotion at work that we thought we deserved. We don't get the recognition that we were expecting. We get angry. 
Many of us tend to get much angrier over minor inconveniences rather than evil perversions that profane the holiness and goodness of God. Think about it. What makes you angry? What grinds your gears? Is it inconveniences? First world problems? Or is your heart troubled by what troubles God? Romans 12.9 says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. As Christians, it's appropriate and godly to be angry about the right things. We should hate sin. We should be appalled by evil. We should grieve over injustices. But one thing I'm I'm observing in our culture, I don't know if you have as well, but it seems that we're living in a day and age where complacency and acceptance of every form of evil has taken the place of reverential and righteous anger. We need to be careful as we seek to be in the world but not of the world. There are times where it is appropriate to be filled with righteous anger. Now, once again, let me clarify. Righteous anger must start by looking inward, (laughs) Let's not be the hypocrites that get frustrated and angry at what everyone else does while there's brokenness in our own life that we just overlook and ignore. There's plenty of those type of Christians. As believers in Christ, righteous anger must always start by looking inward. Righteous anger sees the log in our own eye before we see the speck in our brothers. Righteous anger should lead us to personal repentance. Righteous anger should cause us to grieve at our own sinful habits and flip tables in order to make the necessary changes to look more like Jesus. Jesus' anger in the temple was rooted in his desire to reinstate the original purpose of the temple, which was designed for true worshipers to come worship and pray. And in order to do that, he had to drive out that which was wicked so that he could restore that which was good. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples? You catch that? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. As God's temple, what does Jesus need to clean up in your life? What does Jesus need to make orderly again? What is dishonorable in your life that needs to be made honorable? Has God already revealed that to you? Are you willing to change? Are you responding in repentance? Or are you just going through the motions? Listen, even me, it's easy to get up here and preach. (laughs) The hard part is actually living out what you preach. Am I willing to respond to the conviction that God has showed me? The worst decision you can make in life is to reject God's invitation to come clean. To reject God's invitation of salvation. Do not miss your opportunity to repent.
Notice in our passage that after Jesus drives out the evildoers from the temple, he begins to teach daily in the temple. And all the people were hanging on to his every word as he continues to teach and preach the gospel. Jesus goes from rebuking to restoring. He casts out in order to bring in. Jesus' mission is always to restore. The root of Jesus' rebuke is love. It's compassionate to preach the gospel. It's compassionate to warn of judgment. I've got two daughters, one's three, and what is, one is one. If they decide, hey, we're just going to run out into the highway. I'm not just going to passively respond and be like, well, to each his own. You know, well, I, I, if it makes them happy. <laughs> okay. No, what I'm probably going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to form tackle them. Okay. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admonish those little girls for the fullest decision they were making. Why? Because I love them. I love them. Uh, some of you may be feeling guilty right now because you know your life doesn't match God's word. And so the immediate response, and the accuser always does this, is this thinking that, well, I guess God doesn't like me. No, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. God loves you. He loves you. The Holy Spirit is lovingly telling you that you are meant for something more, that there's joy for you because God's rebuke is always to restore. I played football in high school. Uh, my coaches were maniacs. Um, always yelling. <laughs> always yelling, kind of like I am right now. Um, always yelling. And they would tell us, they'd say, hey, if we ever stop yelling at you, if we ever stop critiquing you, you need to get concerned because that means we don't care. I'll say this. If you ever get to a point in your life where you no longer feel any conviction over sin, you need to stop and check yourself. If you can sin and there's like, you just don't care, there's no desire to change, check yourself because God always rebukes in order to restore. Uh, but here's a truth that all of us know. There are people who will never respond to God's rebuke. You can lovingly share truth. You can point people to Jesus, but some people will never accept the free gift of salvation that God offers through his son. You can throw a life raft out to a, a drowning person, but that drowning person has to reach out and take it. And unfortunately, the chief priests and the religious elite of Jesus' day chose to remain in their own ways and they never accepted God's gift of salvation. In fact, the text says that they became so hardened that they began trying to find ways to destroy him. They were fuming at this point because Jesus had literally taken their world and he had flipped it upside down. For three years now, Jesus had showed all of them who they really were they were legalistic frauds who wanted nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They just wanted to check the box, go through the motions, look like they're really righteous, and get a good reputation. But they honestly had no desire to follow God. And they confront him in chapter 20, verse 2. And they come to Jesus and they say, Tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do these things? And Jesus, once again, showcases his authority by, he didn't even answer the question. He refuses to answer the question. Jesus flips the script. He said, no, this is how this is going to go down. 
you're not going to ask me questions. I'm going to ask you a question. And what he does is brilliantly done. He says, hey, was the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? Because Jesus knew that these people only cared about their reputation. They were people pleasers. And so this question was impossible to answer. If they said that the baptism was from men and not from God, well, a bunch of John's followers were present right then. So that's problematic. If they said, oh, his baptism was from heaven, then everyone would look at them and say, then why have you not believed in what Jesus has said? So they cop out and they cowered their way out and they don't even answer. And Jesus once again reveals their eternal state. And Jesus' response to them is tragic. Essentially, he says, I'm done. You get nothing else from me. I've given you invitation after invitation after invitation. And you've rejected me. So all that's left for you is judgment. How many times can we hear the gospel and reject the gospel before the Lord says, I have no more to say to you. Please do not let that happen. Christ came to the world in order to show the world that he has all authority. He has authority to judge. He has authority to condemn. And he has authority to cast out. But he also has authority to heal. He has authority to mend. He has authority to set free. He has authority to remove guilt. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to make new. And he has authority to grant eternal life to all who will believe in his name. Will you receive what Christ freely offers this Christmas season? This Christmas, we celebrate a king who lived the life that we couldn't, who died the death that we deserved in order to bring salvation to any who would receive him. And as the scripture promises, one day this king is coming back and this king's not going to be riding some nasty donkey. He's going to come back in power. Revelation says he's going to be riding a big white horse and he's going to declare once and for all that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is going to bring back a new heaven and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem with him. And he is going to change everything as he makes all things new. And so until that day, we wait with joyful expectation as we reflect on what Christ has done and anticipate what he one day will do. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Well, Father God, um, I'm sure some people weren't coming in expecting a judgment passage today. But you are the sovereign God. (laughs) You ordain and orchestrate all things. Father, if there's anyone here that that has been rejecting your gift of salvation, I pray that this morning that would change. And they would be reminded that that heart is still beating in their chest that breath is still coming out of their lungs. They haven't missed their opportunity yet. Would you open their eyes? Would you show them who you are? For the rest of us, God, we declare with one voice, you're the king. You're our king. You're our savior. 
we believe in what, you've, in what you did and we are anticipating what one day you're going to do. God, surround us with people. Surround us with the church so that we can be reminded of what our purpose is in this life because the evil one comes. He accuses, he lies, he gets us off track. God, once again, we come before you as we are reminded of who Jesus is and we turn to you and we ask that you would sanctify us, God. Would you mold us into the image of Christ? Would you help us to get rid of sin, to take courageous steps towards you and to know that you give us grace upon grace upon grace. We rest in that. We worship you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.